Good afternoon. I am Jeff Smelser, and this is Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition, and we have our full complement today. Chase Byers is with us. He's in uh, Kentucky today, and uh, Joe works in Elmire, New York. Good afternoon, guys. Hello, Mr. Smelser. It and is so guys. good to see you. <laughs> it's good to see you guys. And we have Drew DeGrotto in the background taking care of all the technical stuff, which means it'll probably go smoothly today. <laughs> We're in Acts chapter 5 today. We've been working our way through the book of Acts. Uh, one of you guys want to give us a one-minute uh, review of what we've covered up to this point? Uh, chapter 1, you have uh, Jesus' ascension, and before that, he uh, tells the disciples to go to Jerusalem. That's where the gospel will begin. Um, as they arrive there, they choose a uh, replacement for Judas. Matthias is chosen. They are together on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2, where they receive uh, the Holy Spirit, speak in tongues. Um, uh, Peter stands up proclaims a message that those present were responsible for the crucifixion of the Son of God. They're pricked in their heart. 3,000 are baptized. Chapter 3, we turn our attention to uh, the event where Peter and John are headed into the temple area. They meet a man who is lame, and they heal him. Gives another audience then to uh, uh, what has taken place. They began preaching. Similar message as chapter 2. And uh, they are arrested, threatened, released in chapter 4. And um, then we talked about Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 as a couple of uh, stark contrast of the attitude toward giving. So then we get to chapter uh, 5, and you have the apostles arrested uh, again. Um not sure if all the apostles are arrested this time or not, but it doesn't seem to be just Peter and John. It says the apostles, whatever that is. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 33 and uh, find out what comes of their arrest. The council has uh, been discussing what to do with them. And so, Chase, how about picking it up in Acts chapter 5 and verse 33? You know what? Just read all the way to the end of the chapter here today. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a while. And he said to them, men of Israel, be careful about what you're about to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted the following. He also perished, and all his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. They were persuaded by him. After they called in the apostles and had had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Very good. Well, let's get into that text, but let me tell you a little story real quickly. So I like the way you pronounced Sanhedrin. I didn't know any better until some years ago. Scott and I, Scott, my brother, 
were visiting. I think it was in a synagogue in suburban Washington, D.C., and this fellow, I don't know if you guys have heard of this guy, Lan Rittmeyer, he's done a lot of work on Herod's Temple, and he was lecturing, presenting a lecture there, and after his lecture, uh, there was a question and answer period, and Scott raised his hand to ask a question, and he got called on. So he asked this question, and it included the word uh, Sanhedrin in his question. He talked about the Sanhedrin, and everybody, the guys on stage, the audience, they were all going, what? What did he say? What? What's he talking about? What? 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 The Sanhedrin. What? 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 And then somebody goes, oh, Sanhedrin. Oh, Sanhedrin. Oh, they, they knew what he's talking about. <laughs> it's funny, the little subtle things that you don't know. Uh, but anyway, so you said Sanhedrin. Not, not, not all of us are teachers of the law like Gamaliel. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about Gamaliel or Gamaliel. Uh, Gamaliel, Joe, you made a point last week. You said Luke has a tendency to introduce characters that are going to be important later on. Yeah, I, I don't know if I said that while we were on the air or off. I can't remember now. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, we are introduced to people as we go along, like Barnabas, maybe even the, the first prominent one. And then we're going to see him crop up several more times in the story. And, and that's kind of a, um, a, a mode of operation uh, for Luke's writing. And so we'll see various individuals introduced, sometimes briefly, and then expanded upon later on. And and Gamaliel comes off looking pretty good here, doesn't he? I, surface. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think I think he misses the mark a little bit, but uh, he certainly comes off better than the rest of them. Yeah, they want to they want to kill the apostles, and and what is so he mentions a Thutis and a Judas. What what is this Thutis and the Judas? What does he say about them? Who were they? And what was his purpose in mentioning them? <clears throat> They were people who rose up and tried to start a new uh, teaching and uh, came to nothing. Um, uh, and so if if this is just from uh, from men, it's not going to mount anything. We don't need to uh, exaggerate the situation. Um, uh, you know, it, it's it's going to, to zero out eventually. They, they may have presented themselves as messianic figures. Um, they seem to have come along and gained a following. He talks about that. Um and uh, so maybe the idea is they were false messiahs. Mm -hmm. um, one or both of these guys, and I don't remember which it is, if it's one or both, uh, are mentioned in Josephus's writings. Uh, they're people about whom we know a little bit something historically. Uh, but in any event, his point is to say, as you said, that their movements came to nothing. And therefore, he puts two possible scenarios before the, the uh, council here, doesn't he? Yeah, he, he, just leave them alone. If it's the work of men, it'll come to nothing, verse 38. But if it's from God, we need to make sure we're not fighting against God, verse 39. So how come you guys are so hard on Gamaliel here? Uh, well, there's a third option, right? Yeah, uh, let him go and, and, you know, submit to God's will. And I think we're tempted to look at this and say it's, you know, oh, how wise, because he doesn't end up, you know, having them, you know, beheaded right then and there. He kind of slows things down. But as Joe is pointing out, he's really just trying to keep the peace. He's not submitting to the will of God. He's not submitting to anything that the apostles have clearly said that are from God. Um, he's just doing what he can to maintain order. I like verse 41. Uh, so they're let go and the apostles depart from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Yeah. Worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 
pretty remarkable, isn't it? Uh, of course, they're following their Savior, right? Yes. Uh, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, Hebrews talks about. We sometimes have this attitude towards suffering that, well, I've just got to tough it out and take it. I've got to patiently endure, which the Bible says. And uh, But this puts a little different spin on it. It's not just, okay, I'll I'll put up with it. It's being counted worthy and rejoicing that, you know what, I can do this. I get to demonstrate my faithfulness to God, even when it hurts. Yeah, excellent point. So, verse 42, every day in the temple and at home, they cease not to teach and to preach Jesus as the Christ. Uh, so, exactly the opposite of what they'd been warned yeah, and, and, they, and they follow through with what they had said that they were going to do. They were going to obey God rather than man. God had told them to uh, go out and uh, to to teach, and uh, so that's exactly what they're going to, uh, to follow through with. Then we come to chapter 6, and we start in verse 1, and it says, Now in these days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, let's pause there, 3,000 baptized on the day of Pentecost— um, then you get chapter four and Luke makes a point. The number had come to be about 5,000, just counting the men. And then you get to chapter five and it talks about, uh, the many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all in one accord in Solomon's porch. It just seems that Luke is trying and the multitude of them that believed back in chapter four, verse 32, seems that Luke is trying to make a point of the growth of the church numerically of just how this is exploding. And, uh, but there's a problem that comes along with that in chapter six. And that's, that is the recurring theme as well, Jeff, that the church keeps meeting resistance at some level. Uh, So it might be from outward circumstances, like in the case in chapter five, Mm -hmm. but uh, also in chapter five, there were inward circumstances with the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. Mm -hmm. And so Satan is trying to get them at all corners, but the church keeps, you know, fighting through that and God is blessing them with a lot of growth. And so Mm -hmm. the chapter six is no exception there. There's another problem from internal means that that could be a big issue if it doesn't get resolved correctly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what is the problem? So in chapter six and verse 11, or sorry, chapter six and verse one, it tells us that these disciples were increasing and there was a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the uh, Hebrew Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Translations handle these two descriptions of pe- groups of people very differently. So let's take a moment to explain who these two groups of people are. Yours says Hellenistic Jews and Hebrew Jews. Is that what you said? Hebraic Jews. Hebraic yeah, Jews. I just struggled saying Hebraic. Hebraic, yeah. Well, you got Sanhedrin, apparently, at least according to those folks in that synagogue. Um, explain explain to us, what it, what are we talking about? What are these two groups of Jews? <clears throat> First of all, they are both, they are all Jews, right? Yes. So, <clears throat> some, some translations will render it in such a way that it's not entirely clear, but they're all Jews at this point. So what's the, what's the distinction here? Is if I'm not mistaken, are we talking about like the the like Greek Jews kind of Greek influenced Jews is what their background is? Because this is used a few other times in the Book of Acts, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so we've got a situation. Remember back of the day of Pentecost when all these Jews came from all these different countries, but there were also Jews who came from Judea right there locally, and, and there's a difference. They're all coming together on the day of Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2 to keep that feast. But there's a difference among them. Those who are local tend to still speak 
if not Hebrew, Aramaic, uh, which was kind of a cousin language to Hebrew and what and was typically spoken in Jerusalem in those days. Um, and and you see Aramaic expressions throughout the New Testament. Um, and they maybe they would have kept some of the customs pertaining to Jewish tradition, maybe even been a little bit more strict in observance of the law. Who knows? Whereas the people coming from other countries, their language might not, they might not speak Aramaic. They they might speak um they might speak Greek, or they might speak, many of them would have spoken Greek, probably most of them spoke some Greek, uh, but they might have spoken some other language in which they were born in their various countries. That's alluded to back in Acts chapter two. They might have dressed more like the Gentile world. They might have not been so scrupulous in keeping all the Jewish traditions. And so you might just describe one group as very ethnically pure in their Jewish culture, and the other group not so much. And you know, when you get two groups like that, those who are um, very ethnically, uh, culturally, let's say culturally pure, may look askance, may look down a little bit at those who have kind of broken away from some of the cultural norms. And that seems to be the case here. And so now yeah. we add another layer with these, right? So they're, they're Greek-speaking, Greek culture Jews who are also now Christians. Right, exactly. So they're all Christians. All these people are now Christians, but they've still got some cultural distinctions. Right. Yeah. And the only reason why I bring that up is later on in Acts chapter 9, we're going to read about Paul arguing with some Hellenists. Those aren't Christians. Those would just be Greek-speaking Jews right. Right. that he's arguing with. Right. Good. And what's what's wild to think about, I'm, this, this issue would have been such a big deal. I think about how touchy of an issue it is. A particular race within the Christians is getting overlooked, and this other race is getting served. I mean, this has the potential to be blown out of proportion right. if they're not careful. Well, you guys, you guys just don't care about us. That's why you're not serving us. But the text doesn't tell us anything like that, does it, guys? It instead, it looks like the apostles and the Christians find a way to wrap their heads around the problem. And I think that this is a really good chapter, personally. To, to talk about conflict resolution, the minute we start thinking about it's me versus that brother is when you're going to start having issues. Rather, it needs to be it's me and this brother versus the problem. How can we work together against the problem that's here and get to the best resolution that we yep. can? Yep. And strictly speaking, they're not two different races, but your point is well taken and is really a good application here to today where there, we live in a society where there has been racial conflict, racial strife, and yet in Christ, we are to be one. And we've got to get past those kinds of things and work out our differences. And the disciples work out the, the issue here. How, how do they decide to work this problem out or resolve it? Having the multitude choose men that they have confidence in to uh, be in charge of this situation so that the apostles can continue with the task that God has given them. So in verse 2, they the 12, the apostles say, they call the multitude of the disciples unto them, and they say, it's not fit that we should forsake the word of God and serve tables. Uh, I want to come back to that in a moment. They say, look ye out therefore, brethren, from among you seven men of good report, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. I want to come back to that expression, over this business, in a moment also. But their proposal is, pick seven men that we can appoint to take care of this so, so that they can see to it nobody gets neglected. We, verse 4, the apostles will continue steadfastly in prayer and in the ministry of the word. 
Um, and there's some vocabulary here that's going to be important. But let's get to verse 5 and 6. Uh, the saying, please the whole multitude. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they prayed, they laid their hands upon them. What do you notice about the names of the men that they chose? These are Greek names, aren't they? They are Greek names. And why is that interesting? Well, uh, you, we might be expecting Hebrew names because these are Jews, right. but the fact that they're Greek names may be pointing that they are Hellenists themselves. They're either Hellenists themselves or they are Jews who are certainly not looking down at the Hellenistic Jews because they've been willing to take Greek names themselves. Right. And so it looks like they went out of their way to appoint men in such a manner that there would be no questions about their partiality uh, toward the, the ones who'd been being neglected. And not only that particular cultural background that they have, but also the character that these men have. And you know, you might be thinking, well, if they're just going to be serving tables, why would it matter that there are these qualities? But you know, what we learned back in chapter five is there are people that are trying to do good things for all the wrong reasons. And those are not the guys you want to appoint to put in charge of something like this. Yeah. They end up, they might end up having selfish motives and they might end up taking or being untrustworthy. And so it tells us that these guys had good reputation. They were full of the spirit and they were full of wisdom, which I think that's an important detail that we need to remember is that this is a huge problem. They got to find a way to distribute this food in a way that will ration it so that it can make the longevity and so that they can prioritize people who might need it more than others. And there's a lot of work that's going to go into this. And so these guys need to be wise in the way that they use what they're given to distribute. Later on in Philippians 1, we read about the overseers and deacons associated with the church at Philippi. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul talks about the uh, who, what kind of men should be appointed as deacons. Do you guys believe these are deacons here? Uh, they are. They are deaconing. They're deaconing back in verse um, two, where it says serve tables. The word for serve, the verb there translated serve in Greek is diakoneo. And then uh, Paul taught uh, the apostles. Peter talks about when well, the apostles talk about a ministry of the word as opposed to what these men are going to be doing. And that word is diakonia. And so the family of words, diaconus is translated minister or deacon, diaconia is a ministry or a service, and a diaconeo is a verb meaning to serve or to minister. So the language is certainly the language that we see used of deacons. Um, I, I would take it these are deacons being appointed here. And and I think it's interesting, <clears throat> we, <clears throat> we sometimes formalize things, we make things very official there's a there there are ministries there are services we like to say ministry because we want to give that sense of i don't know what sense we're trying to give to it maybe clergy sense to it or something it just means service there are different services and there's a service in the word and that's the service in which the apostles are going to be engaged there's this other service that these seven men are going to be tending to and by the way it's not that they have to serve the tables themselves I like the language in verse uh, three, at the end of verse three, and the American standard says, whom we may appoint over this business. What does that tell you? That they are responsible to make sure that it gets done, not necessarily that they are scooping food out. Yeah. So when we appoint deacons in churches today, 
and we assign to them a task, we appoint them to a task, that doesn't necessarily mean they have to do that task themselves. They're going to see to it that it gets done. They're going to organize it, arrange it, call upon volunteers who can help get it done. Uh, and that's kind of what these guys are doing here. Yep. But I think while, it's interesting. Oh, go ahead. Nope, go ahead. Well, I just think it's interesting that Nicholas was chosen, uh, you know, to, it seems that they really are being extra careful to, to even, you know, amongst the seven, uh, this proselyte right. is, is chosen. Um, so what's it, a proselyte? Uh, a convert? Um, what's a better word? Uh, well, he, he actually was a Gentile who had become a, a Jew in practice. Right, right. And now he's a Christian. So Yeah, so, yeah not, not by family. He himself had been converted. Yeah. Now, one other thing I want to mention before we leave this section, I, I look at this section as a model. We talk about appointing deacons and we talk about appointing elders. What did the apostles do? The apostles identified the need and talked about the qualifications. Uh, they identified the need and they talked about the qualifications. They said, choose seven men of good report, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But then they put it to the multitude to pick the seven men. You know, Paul writes to Titus, he says, I left you in Crete to appoint elders. I don't think that means Titus goes into each church and he just says, okay, you, you, and you. But he goes in and teaches what Paul had taught him about the, the job, what, what you need to do, and the kind of men who are going to fill that job. Now call upon the brethren who know themselves and who know who fits those qualifications. Uh, and, and, and to that point, uh, Nathan Quinn, one of the excellent teachers here in, in Elmira, uh, recently going through First and Second Timothy and Titus, uh, just made a great observation about those books that they're written to these men, Titus and Timothy, where we find the qualifications of elders and deacons. And yet, all the way through those books, it's as if Paul is talking to the church through those men. He, he's going to be saying over and over how the how the they ought to conduct themselves in the church in the house of God, which is the church, things like that. Um, and so it's not just that these men are the ones who are going to make the decisions. This is going to be relayed and and taught by these men for the the congregation. All right. Anything else on those first six verses before we move on? I think it's interesting that and uh, Chase kind of alluded to this right at the very beginning. You have this problem. You have the solution, and then the result in verse 7, the Word of God spread. This could have been disaster. This could have, you know, uh, taken God out of the scenario. Obviously, that's foolish to, to do. But just as a, as a plan, this could have just ended the church. This could have ended this new, new work, if you will. Um, and yet, the way that they handled it, it seems as if verse 7 is an extension of these first six verses, because of the way this was handled uh, in a godly fashion, then the word of God continued to spread. Yeah, yeah, good. And now, who also, was the first? Yeah, Chase. Also there in verse 7, I mean, it says that a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. And so that, that just goes to show how widespread this gospel is getting. And I don't think you would have seen that result if, it, if there had been disunity and, you know, a split down the middle of the church. So right. that always stands out to me. Priests are now converting to the Lord. Excellent. All right. Then we come to verse eight. Now, who were the first two of the seven? Who were the first two mentioned back in verse uh, five? Stephen and Philip. 
And and I think that's because now uh, we're going to see something about Stephen, and then we're going to see some things about Philip. Uh, but first of all, about Stephen, uh, and I'll read verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, wrought great wonders and signs among the people. Just a note there, he's not one of the apostles, but he does have the ability to do miracles. Um, we'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 8. But there arose certain of them that were of the synagogue called the synagogue of the Libertines and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of them of Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen. You guys know anything about these synagogues? I do not. I, I should. Uh, seems like uh, I probably studied at one point, but I can't remember anything. I think it's one of those things you prepare for every time you teach a class on the book of Acts, but you forget. Get um, so yeah. What what is it, Jeff? I, no, I don't. I don't. I don't think I've looked at it, and I don't think there's a whole lot that we do know about them. Uh, you kind of get an impression. Uh, so I, I had an occasion to speak in Washington D.C. or maybe just outside of Washington in Maryland one time time to a Ghanaian church. Uh, it was a congregation, and everybody there was from Ghana. Um, and, you know, one of the things I stress to them is that they need to be careful that their identity does not become being Ghanaian. They need their identity needs to be in Christ. But it was just a matter of fact that the entire congregation was made up of Ghanaians. Um, and it, it kind of I get the impression and I may be wrong that these were synagogues um, that were associated with certain groups of Jews, in some cases geographically uh, oriented Jews who are from certain places. Maybe that's not right, but for whatever reason, Luke identifies them and talks about they were disputing, talks about the fact they were disputing with Stephen. I don't know any more to say about it. No, uh, I just did a quick glance at one of my go-to commentaries, and it's kind of saying the same similar thing. So. But, but I do wonder, is there intended to be any sort of connection? So these are people that are from other places, not uh, Judean Hebrews. And so we just finished talking about the Hellenistic Jews. And then we're seeing these men from the synagogue that are that are disputing, um, perhaps with Stephen's rise in, uh, in prominence or, you know, coming more to the, the forefront of the work. Um, uh, this is an opportunity for them to attack uh, perhaps even some of the things that happened earlier in the chapter? That that may be, Joe. You know, Luke mentions it for some reason. And it is it is a thing in the book of Acts that Luke does highlight troublemakers coming from other places. Uh, you know, we'll get over to Iconium and people from, no, to Lystra, and Jews from Iconium and Antioch will come to Lystra and create problems for Paul. Uh, we'll get over to Acts chapter 21, when Paul goes into the temple, um, and it's Jews from Asia who are in here in Jerusalem who accuse him of having taken a Gentile into the temple. When he was um, in Berea, that came from Thessalonica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there may be something there. I, I'm not sure. I, I, you know, that's an interesting line of thought to pursue. Luke mentions it for some reason. Yeah. Verse 10, they were not able to withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they, and here's a word that we don't use, they suborned men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So my, my Bible says suborned. I bet yours says something different. Secretly induced. Okay. All right. So they, they put up some false accusers. 
here to testify against uh, Stephen. And verse 12 says, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and seized him and brought him into the council. You, this is the same council that the apostles had just been standing before. Peter and John had stood before earlier. Uh, and, 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 and one other individual before them. Uh, this, is, this is almost reading like Luke uh, describing uh, the arrest of Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, they, they couldn't resist the wisdom of Jesus uh, when they were debating, right? And so then they hire men to lie about Jesus. Um, uh, they stir up the crowd. They deliver Jesus into the council, you know, almost line by line. All these witnesses. And, and so, you know, as we get further into this chapter, it, Stephen looks more and more like Jesus. Uh, and we might just say, the follower of Christ. Yeah. And it's interesting too, what they're accusing him of in verse 14, you know, that he said that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. And that right. was one of the things that they re were really upset with Jesus about is the fact that he said this place would be yeah. destroyed. Yeah. And what was the other thing they, they said Stephen was guilty of saying. Ch he's going to change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Yeah. Okay. Um, take just a moment to talk about whatever connection there is with those accusations and reality. Was the temple going to be destroyed? Yes. Was it, was it fair? How, what do you think about this accusation that, that he was saying Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place? That's a true statement. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Jesus is the one who is going to be responsible. He's going to use the, the Roman government as the agent to do that. Yeah. Uh, they'll be the instrument, but he's the one that, that is going to uh, bring judgment upon them. And the accusation uh, changed the customs which Moses delivered unto us. Well, <laughs> so the problem is that what the custom that Moses delivered is not the custom that they have. That's right. <laughs> you know, if they had actually listened to Moses, they would be ready for Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Moses pointed to Jesus, but they got distracted with a lot of their own traditions and customs in the name of Moses or pretending, supposing they were from Moses. Uh, again, the same accusations that they brought against Jesus, uh, that, uh, you know, eating with unwashed hands and uh, doing things on the Sabbath and so on and so forth. You know, a lot of times when there are people who make accusations, there's some relationship between the false accusation and the truth. And there's just enough of a connection there to allow it to take hold. But there's a different slant on it. Um, verse 15, all that sat in the council, fastening their eyes on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. And then we go on into chapter seven. And the high priest said, are these things so? And he said, it's interesting, Stephen's response. Stephen's response is not say, well, what, what I meant was, what I said was, what he just kind of bypasses that. And he starts into a sermon here that for a long time, I missed the point of the sermon. Uh, but let's let's get into his sermon here. What does well, he do? What does he say? Can I just can I just say this, if it's okay? Can I spoil what the purpose of the sermon is now? Please do. Or, okay. So I when I read this text with people, I like to jump to verses 51 through 53. Yeah. Because then it puts you in the headspace of why right. he's going through exactly. all this stuff. So in verse 51, 
Stephen, his conclusion is you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. So that's his ending conclusion yeah. is yeah. you all have rebelled against God's prophets throughout all of history, even your ancestors. You're doing it to me now, and you did it to Jesus. Exactly. This is going to be his main point. And so as you go through his sermon, the examples that he gives in his sermon are Joseph, who God was with Joseph, but his brothers were against him. Moses, God was with Moses, had sent Moses to them, and they turned against Moses. I even think there is a kind of a contrast between the tabernacle. God gave you this tabernacle, and you went to the tabernacle of Moloch, uh, that seems to be the theme. And then he, he comes to his conclusion at the end. So this is your history, and this is exactly what you're doing. Uh, you're doing, you just did it to Jesus, and then their response is, they do it to Stephen. Yeah, and uh, I, I would add one more to that list. I think even Abraham, the first one in uh, verses two through eight, uh, Abraham uh, had to leave his family as well. So you have this separation. Abraham had to leave his family going out of Ur. Joseph is rejected by his brothers. Moses is rejected by the Israelites. Jesus is rejected by the Jews of his day as well. So I think we see in this lesson both points uh, coming from both directions. Uh, um, uh, and then, of course, it, then the, the tra tragedy of this is instead of listening to Stephen, uh, they're going to uh, do it one more time. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, there's there's several things that are worth talking about in this. Um, so I, I think, what do you think? Do you want to take time to read through the sermon and notice various things that we, we encounter in it? I think it's great. You know, and one of the, and, and you mentioned this at the beginning here, Jeff, that uh, of this section, that this is a lesson that any 12-year-old Jewish boy could have taught. Yeah. You know, the details that are here are extremely elementary, which I think is the beauty of the studying the scriptures. We, we don't need to get into some difficult concepts to understand what God's message is. And, and so to, to me, this, this sermon is really helpful to me as, as I think about how I need to explain God's word to people. Well, boy, you put me in my place. Any 12-year-old Jewish boy could have taught this, but I preached for 10 or 15 years before I understood the point of this sermon. <laughs> well, I, I, so I, and, and maybe that maybe that ought to, uh, you know, prick us a little bit in, in other sections of the scriptures. Maybe, you know, we just need to step back and say, OK, what, what is it that God wants us to to, to see this? Yeah. And, and, and there certainly be other lessons and so forth. But all right, let's go through it. So we'll pick it up in verse two. And he said, brethren and fathers, hearken. Well, why does he say brethren and fathers? Well, brethren, they're fellow Jews, the one big family and fathers. I think he's just showing respect for the older men amongst them. Hearken, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham uh, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said unto him, get thee out of thy land and from thy kindred and come into the land which I will show you. And then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran, and from thence, when his father was dead, God removed him into this land, wherein you now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on. And he promised that he would give it to him in possession and to his seed after him, when as yet 
he had no child. Let's just take that much right there. What do you want to notice in that section? I, I'll, I'll start at the end and we can work backwards. Um, you remember that even though Abraham was promised, this land is going to be to you and, and your descendants. Abraham was told that. Isaac was told that. Jacob was told that. And Jacob was a wealthy, wealthy man. But when it came time to bury his wife, Sarah, he did not own any land in which to bury her. He had to go negotiate a deal with uh, Ephron the Hittite uh, in order to obtain some property, a cave in which to bury Sarah. And so there is this, this point, and the same point is made over in the book of Hebrews. Abraham did not receive that promise. The promises of God were for far in the future, and Abraham would receive the ultimate promises of God along with the rest of the people of God. All right. Uh, if there's nothing else you guys want to talk about in those first uh, five verses, um, start in verse six and go through. Oh, I don't know. Go go down through verse eight or nine. Go however far you want to go. One of you. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would sojourn in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage, oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. All right. Um, several things to notice there. What do you want to pick up on? I'm trying to open a, a PowerPoint presentation here while you guys work on that. Or, Thank go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Nope. Nope. Uh, well, I tell you. All right. So, what's the nation when it says in verse six, sojourn in a strange land? What land is that? Egypt. He's, going, he's talking about going into Egypt. You talk about a 12-year-old Jewish boy. Any 12-year-old Jewish boy could have told this story. This is the famous story of the Israelites going into slavery down in Egypt. Um, and in the nation to which they shall be in bondage, will I judge, said God. God told Abraham that in Genesis 15th chapter. He judged that nation when he brought the plagues upon them and then when he destroyed Pharaoh's army uh, in, in the sea. Um, and how far did you read, Joe? I eight. was trying to open a PowerPoint. Just through eight. Okay, just through eight. Uh, in, what else you want to add there? I think some of the emphasis here, especially in verse eight, is God's delivering of his promises. Uh, first, in terms of, of getting them out of Egypt and, you know, being the deliverer, but also making this great nation out of them and into the 12 patriarchs that God has been with them. He is a God that's keeping his covenant promise and then that's directly contrasted with, with what he's going to say in the next section. All right. would, would, would we see any connections with what Paul taught in Galatians 4 as far as the physical Jews being uh, the bondage, the, 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 the bondwoman even here? Uh, and, and, you know, it says that that corresponds to Egypt, right? Yeah. And, and so... You know, there's a, there's sort of a hint. He, he hasn't clearly stated it, but Egypt was judged because of what they had done to God's people. The Israelites are going to be judged because mm -hmm. of what they've done to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Sure. And he's he mentions circumcision. We'll come back to circumcision um, when we get down to the end of this. 
So I guess yeah. uh, let's get ready for verse eight and nine. He mentions Isaac begetting Jacob and Jacob, the 12 patriarchs. So the 12 patriarchs would be Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Isker, Zebulun, uh, Joseph, Benjamin. Did I miss one? Nope. Got him. Very good. Okay. Uh, the, the the sons of Jacob, and Jacob's other name is Israel. So we're talking about the namesakes of the 12 tribes of Israel here. But before they were tribes, when it was just those 12 sons of Jacob, they were moved with jealousy in verse 9 against Joseph and sold him into Egypt. And then Stephen says, and God was with him. So there you have that contrast. Here's Joseph. God was with Joseph. But his brothers sold him into Egypt. They sold him into slavery. God was with him. They opposed the one that God was with. And, of course, that's going to be Stephen's point. Ultimately, Jesus. Jesus was from God. You opposed him. You've done it all through your history. Uh, pick it up there, somebody. Yeah, verse 10, and rescued him out of all his troubles, and he gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. Now a famine, a great suffering, came over all Egypt and Canaan, and our ancestors could find no food. And when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there the first time. The second time, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph invited his father Jacob and all his relatives, 75 people in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there and were carried back to Shechem and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. There is the allusion to the cave that, that Abraham had to buy in which to bury his wife, Sarah. And here it's talking about uh, a Jacob being carried back and his body buried there, right? Am I right? Yep. Okay. Yep. And do you, do you see, again, another allusion to Jesus here in the, the story of Joseph? Uh, you know, his brother's selling him off, uh, considering him as dead, uh, we, when we read the details in Genesis, uh, thinking that he has died. And uh, then it says in verse 13, and the second time Joseph was made known to his brethren, you know, kind of like the resurrection, um, uh, Jesus being made known to the, the Jews. Mm -hmm. Just a, a little note on the numbers here. It mentions verse 14, it mentions uh, 75. I've got an older translation that says three score and 15, but if I do the arithmetic, that's 75. And uh, so you've got Jacob, you've got his uh, his whole family, children, wives, their wives, grandchildren. At this point, you add them all up. Now, in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 46 and verse 27, it says 70. However, the Septuagint at that passage actually says 75. Um, I'm not going to try to reconcile those numbers, but just to say, when Stephen says 75 here, uh, he is using a number that was found in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures here. Yep. Yeah, and, and, and might we also include this, you know, within that numbering, perhaps that numbering difference could uh, be accounted for by Joseph's own family? Yeah, although in Genesis, it first of all mentions 66 persons coming down to Egypt, and then it says, it adds in Joseph's family, the those that were born to him in you're Egypt, right. and all the persons, and then it comes up with 70. You're, you're right. I've, I missed that. My bad. So Thanks. Yeah, no, no yeah. problem. Yeah, yeah. so tw a 12-year-old Jewish boy would have known that number, and I didn't. <laughs> 
Thank you, Joe. <laughs> All right. I was just also going to say, I mean, just the further parallel to not only Jesus being this or Joseph in this like second resurrection or this resurrection of sorts in verse um, 13. But then there's this deliverance that comes through the misfortune of Joseph. Uh, God was able to use it for good. Genesis 50 says and you're able to see the same thing with Jesus. I mean, obviously, it wasn't right for them to sell Jesus and for him to be crucified. But God was able to use that in order for for all of mankind to be saved. And so right. you see some of those parallels there. Yeah. Made, made second in, in command, even uh, amongst the nation. Uh, yeah, a lot, lot of parallels there. Yeah. So we've just got about 30 seconds. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to highlight for now, we'll come back and go through it in detail next week, Lord willing. I'm going to highlight kind of how this theme works through the rest of the sermon here. In verse 24, he talks about Moses and he says, God by his hand was giving them deliverance but the brethren did not understand that. He supposed they would. Verse 27, um, when he said, uh, when he was trying to settle a difference between the Israelites, uh, he that did his neighbor wrong thrust Moses away saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? God was delivering them by Moses. And they're going, who made you a judge over us? Later on in verse 35, this Moses whom they refused saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? Him hath God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer. And then in verse 39, talks about Moses, to whom our fathers would not be obedient, but thrust him from them. So you see that theme being repeated. God was with somebody in our ancient past, and our, our forefathers rejected them. And that's what you all are doing. And as Chase pointed out, that's what Stephen comes back to in verses 51 and following. So next time, let's come back and go through this uh, sermon I may want to take a few minutes next time to talk about the 400 years, um, but let's work our way through this. We'll probably pick it up about verse 17 next time. I hope you enjoyed today's Bible Quest program. If you're interested in online Bible studies, go to BibleCourses.online. There you'll be able to choose from a variety of Bible videos that are available on demand at no cost. Thank you.